0: Good evening, Edgewater family. How great was Easter? It was amazing. Um, I actually watched from my home because I have three very small children um, and putting them all in a van for an hour and a half didn't sound like any sort of Easter fun. So I sent them outside to eat candy and watch the live stream. And it was just so great to see the honking for Jesus and the smiling. And and now we get to dive into God's word again. We get to see... um, what God has to share with us, even this night. I think one of my favorite things about God is that he meets us where we are. And tonight we're in our own homes. We're maybe in our cars, listening on podcasts. We are not gathered the way we want to be, but God is still meeting. God is still with us. And he will still teach us things tonight from his word. So let's pray And we'll dive into it. Father, thank you. Thank you for this beautiful day that we have, this time to sit and to reflect, to read through your word, to see what you would like to teach us this evening from the book of Exodus. Father, penetrate our hearts. Open them to you to see what it is that you want to show us. So we love you. We seek you this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Grab your Bibles or your apps on your phones. Open them up to Exodus chapter 11. Have you ever noticed that the longer you spend time with someone, the more things you end up learning about them? Like you've learned things that you Had no idea about of a person, even if you spent a ton of time with them. So years ago, um, my best friend since third grade, we'd been bus buddies all through high school. Uh, We'd gone to different colleges. He was graduating from college in London. And he emails me and he says, hey, when I get done, I've still got my flat right next to Hyde Park in downtown London, and I've got it for an extra week. You should come and hang out and we'll go explore London." And I was like, yes, that is absolutely happening. So we're getting ready for the trip, time is coming up for the trip, and I email him, and I say, all right, what should I pack for the trip? What should I pack? You're living there, what do I need to pack? And he emails me back and he says, "'The weather here has been absolutely beautiful. "'I've been wearing shorts and a T-shirt everywhere I go.'" Like, brilliant. London and the weather's beautiful, what could be better? So I pack my shorts, I pack my t-shirts, I hop on a plane. Um, Funny, because I was trying to remember today um, what year it was that I did this, and all I could remember was that it was right in the middle of the H1N1 epidemic, Um, but I still went to London, because, you know, that's what we did in those days. Um, So I fly to London, and I get there, and I, I go to meet my buddy, and it's freezing cold, The thing that was weird, though, is that he hadn't lied to me. The weather was beautiful. It was sunny, and he was wearing shorts and T-shirt everywhere he went. The piece of information he failed to to bring out was that he's the only person in all of the city of London wearing shorts and a T-shirt. See, I didn't know that he was super warm-blooded. We'd been friends 20 years, and I found that out, and I froze to death and had to buy an entire new wardrobe. Even to this day, if I go and visit him at his house, I always pack like a sweater or whatever just because his house is always cold because he's warm-blooded. We have that opportunity to learn something new about God every time we come to the Bible. We can glean something new about his character and the way he wants to relate to us and to the world. Sometimes those things are encouraging and uplifting and we get some of that in this passage tonight. And sometimes they're incredibly sobering and we get that here too. I think Exodus especially, especially the first half of the book of Exodus, has so many things for us to learn about God. It is really God revealing his nature and his character to his people. In Exodus chapter four, when Moses first encounters God at the burning bush and Moses says, what's your name? Who are you? I don't know very much about you. Moses is asking the right question. And God spends the next number of chapters revealing the answer to Moses and to Pharaoh and to his children and to the Egyptians. And we're going to see a bunch of that in these passages tonight. We're going to do all of chapter 11 and we're going to do chapter 12 through verse 28. And what I want to see as we look through these passages is what can we learn about God? What can we learn about God through what he wants us to see about himself in Exodus? Exodus 11 is really continuing the story of Exodus 10. So we're gonna back up a few verses and we'll start in Exodus 10, 28. And here's what it says. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. And then the Lord says to Moses, yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. The first thing that I see about God in this passage is this. God has a limit. God has a limit. It's the first thing that we see. You see, as I read through the plagues, what I see is a merciful God, a patient God, a God who provides opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for repentance. That's what happens. I mean, God turns the Nile into blood and then he withdraws the plague and gives an opportunity for repentance. There's the frogs and the gnats and the flies and each plague in turn is withdrawn in his mercy with an opportunity for Pharaoh to repent, for the Egyptians to do the right thing and let the children go. But time and time again, they don't. And what I see here is this, ultimately God has a limit. There's a time. There's a time when it ends. There's a last plague. There's a last plague. There's also sirens in the background, which is fun, you know. (laughs) Outdoor church, you gotta love it. Matt got honking. I get sirens. I don't know what that means, but that's that's what's happening right now. So, but there's this thing that I think we know in the back of our heads, but we don't grasp or we don't live like it, or we don't really hold on to it. It's this: there's a limit to this thing. We serve a merciful, wonderful, caring God who wants to see all come to repentance, but eventually the clock runs out on everybody. You know, the Bible says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess, but it also says at that time, for some people, it'll be too late. Have you guys been seeing like the crazy stuff that's going on on the internet? Just a few crazy things on the internet. But the crazy thing with the guys who are prophesying that this COVID-19 thing is the beginning of end times. This is gonna be the end. This is the beginning of revelation. The crazy prophecy buffs who are trying to tie the whole thing together. um, I was reading some of them today just for the fun of it. Uh, It wasn't much fun actually. (laughs) But I actually think they have something right they have something right, which is this. God could come back at any time. God could come back at any time. I might not finish this message. It might be tomorrow. It might be next week. There's this thing that we forget, which is there's a limit. There's a time limit on this thing. And at any moment, God could return. And the question I have for myself, the question I have for you guys out there in your homes, in your cars, or wherever you're listening tonight is this. What if we lived like the crazy prophecy buffs on the internet were right and that God was coming back this year? What would that look like? If you knew that Jesus's return was going to be in 2020, what would you do differently? What would you do differently? I got a list of questions. What would you start doing that you're not doing now? If you knew God's coming back in 2020, what would you stop doing? Would your Facebook feed or your Twitter account look different? Maybe it would. Who would you tell? If you knew God was coming back in 2020, that's when the time limit was. That's when God's patience ran out and he's gonna grab his children, he's gonna take them home. Who would you tell? And if they didn't believe you, would you just let it go? All right, well, everyone's entitled to their, no. No. God's coming back. Would you be worried about offending people? Because here's the thing. When I read through people that I really admire, Christians that I really admire, the Christians who changed the world lived every day like God could come back the next day. They did. And it's what made them strive and break convention and talk to people and put themselves in uncomfortable situations because they knew today could be my last. Today could be our last. I think we need to keep that in front of us at all times. So that's the first thing. It's God has a limit. The second thing that I see through this little passage, these first three verses is this. God illuminates steps. Okay, so number two, God illuminates steps. And here's, here, look at this. This is so interesting to me because look what God tells Pharaoh. I'm, look what God tells Moses. He says, afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. That's what God tells Moses. When Pharaoh lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Is that what happens? I mean, kind of. It's kind of, to me, when I read it, it's kind of like, you know, Luke Skywalker being told that Darth Vader killed his father. Really? Well, kind of, from a certain point of view, right? Because what's left out here is that when he drives you away completely, soon afterwards, he's going to follow you. And you're going to find yourself between a, two mountains in a box end canyon, and there's going to be a sea behind you. None of that's mentioned here. But so often I see that that's the way that God gives us information. God illuminates a single step at a time. He doesn't give us this path. We talk about that God has this plan for our life, but so often I think all God gives us is the very next thing we're supposed to do. And you see it over and over again in the Bible. You see it with the story of Gideon, right? God tells Gideon, raise an army. And then Gideon gathers 32,000 people. And God says, you know, that's too many. Just tell anybody who doesn't want to be here, they can go home, right? And 22,000 people leave. So now Gideon's down to 10,000. God says, you know, that's still too many. Why don't you have them go down and have a drink of water and I'll tell you who to pick. So they all go down, they have a drink of water. And then God says, okay, Gideon, most of the men got down on their knees and put their face in the water and drank. Let all of them go home. But 300 of them actually scooped it up in their hands and lapped it up like a dog. (laughs) Keep those guys. Which is odd to me because if I'm picking people to like, stake my life on. It's not people who lap water out of their hand like a dog. That, it's, that's not the guy I'd pick, right? But that's what God says. And then God tells Gideon, all right, get your trumpets and get your clay jars and split into three groups and go off, right? And you guys know the end of this story. They break the clay jars, they blow the trumpets, they sing that God is a mighty warrior and God turns the entire enemy on each other. But Gideon doesn't know any of that each step of the way. At the beginning, he's just told, get an army. And then he's told, you know what, let some of them go home. It's step after step after step. It's like this. So years ago, I um, hiked into some hot springs outside of Eugene with a bunch of friends. And we went in, we went in the hot springs, we're hanging out, it was super fun. And then this storm rolled in and it was dark and it was windy and it was nighttime. And we had to hike out. It was like a one mile hike, okay? And all we'd brought was a lighter and some candles. And we couldn't get the candles to stay lit because of the wind, and the lighter wouldn't stay lit because of the wind, and it was pitch black out. But what I ended up doing is I ended up taking the lighter and holding it right down next to the ground and hitting the sparker, right? Have you ever done that when it's super black out and you just hit a bright light real quick and it illuminates everything right in front of you for just a second, like boom, you can see everything. And we hiked the entire mile out just like that just hiking right down to the ground, spark, 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 step, spark, step, spark, step, spark, step, spark, step. Each little step getting illuminated, each little step getting illuminated. So often I think that's how my walk with God is supposed to be. I keep coming back to his word. I keep coming back to fellowship. I keep coming back to prayer and I pray for the next spark and I take a step in that direction and I pray for the next spark and I take a step in that direction. And he leads me step after step After step, but he doesn't illuminate the entire path. God illuminates steps. And I think how many times in my life have I not done something because I didn't know what the second step was. Like I felt like God was asking me to step out in faith, but all I could see was that first step and I couldn't see the path. And so in fear, I didn't walk with the Lord in the way that he wanted me to go. Maybe you feel like God's asked you to sign up for foster care or save families, but you can't quite reconcile in your head. How would that work? What would happen if I had another child in my house? Um, how would they interact with my kids? You don't know the whole path. You just know God asked me to sign up and do this. And what I see through the plagues and through Moses and through the whole Bible is when we take a step of faith, the next step becomes illuminated. But when we stand back and we wait for the entire path We miss out on what God wants to do in our lives. Okay, so those are the first two things I see, right? First two things I see is this. God has a limit. And then secondly, God illuminates steps, all right? Then we go on from here through the rest of the passage. Here's what it says. It says, this is God speaking to Moses. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This is the 10th plague being threatened by Moses. And there's so much that we could pull out of this chapter. But the one thing I want to look at is I want to look at Moses here because Moses is incredible in this chapter, right? When you go back up, you just got to play this scene out because remember what happened in the last chapter, there was the plague of darkness, right? And at the end of the plague of darkness, Pharaoh calls Moses in. He says, Moses, you can go. You can go, but leave all your livestock. And Moses says, no, man, we're not compromising. When we leave, we're taking everything with us. Every last hoof is going with us. And Pharaoh says, you know what, Moses? Don't ever show your face in my courtroom again. If you do, you'll die. And Moses says, fine, you won't see my face again. And he turns on his heels and he starts to walk out. And the Lord speaks to him. and says, hey, Moses, turn around. Tell Pharaoh that was your last chance. And Moses, I just see him, right? I see just Pharaoh's court with Pharaoh sitting on his throne with his wise men, with his attendants, with this old shepherd dude who's walking out and he just turns around and he looks at Pharaoh and he says, that was your last chance, Pharaoh. God says This is the end for you. And you're right. You won't see my face again until you call me in here to tell me to leave. Mic drop. And then Moses just walks out. Like, what's going on with Moses here? This is not the same guy we met six chapters ago, seven chapters ago. It's completely different Moses. And he's so rad. It reminds me of of, um, a kid I had in high school. His name was Sean. Sean. And um, there's this one story of Sean on a uh, houseboat trip that we took, this rad houseboat trip, Uh, one of the coolest high school trips we ever took. Um, And Sean was a big kid, big, strong, handsome, super nice, uh, probably bigger than any other kids in our houseboat. And I come back to the houseboat one night and you know, on those trips, like at a certain point, everyone kind of gets tired. Everyone gets grumpy. Even the nicer kids get a little bit on edge, right? And I come back in and Sean is hot. He is storming around that houseboat. And he's like, I'm like, dude, Sean, what's going on? He's like, dude, someone took my sleeping bag. Someone's gonna pay. Someone's got my sleeping bag. I'm tired. It's been a long day. I wanna sleep, right? So I ran over to my bunk real quick to make sure that it wasn't me who took his sleeping bag. And then I started helping him look for it, right? He's just, he's raging around this houseboat. And I look over and there's Chad Hansen passed out of sleep on top of Sean's sleeping bag. And I go, Sean, I think your sleeping bag's under Chad. And the next thing I hear from Sean is this. Um, Mr. Hansen, I think you're on my sleeping bag. Total 180, right? What happened? What happened to Sean? He didn't know he was dealing with. He thought he was dealing with another camper and he's got 50 pounds of muscle on any of them, but he's not. He's dealing with Chad Hansen. That's exactly Moses, but in mirror image, right? I see Moses in chapter six, walking into Pharaoh and kind of being like, um, Pharaoh, if you could let God's people go, that'd be great. No, no, no more straw. Okay. No more straw. Okay. Sorry. Didn't, didn't mean to disturb you. And then what chapter 11, he spins on his heels. You know what? You will never see me again, Pharaoh, until you tell me to leave. See you later. What happened in chapter four in chapter five and chapter six, Moses didn't know who he was dealing with. In chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, God's power is exposed. God's nature is exposed. And Moses realizes, I serve a merciful, just, all-powerful God. I'm on his side. And I have absolutely nothing to fear. See, the thing I see about Moses is this. God changes his people Right? God changes his people. That's what he does. And it's the knowledge of God that changes his people. It's the knowledge of whose team we're on. It's why I love some of these stories in the Old Testament. It's why I love the plagues. I think the plagues paint God as ultimate creator. You wonder whether or not God is creator of the universe. Nothing has power over creation like it's creator. And God has power over creation. That's whose team we're on. And I read this transformation of Moses and I think, I want that. I wanna be like that. And so much of it, I believe, is me learning more and more and more about God's nature because he does. He changes his people, right? So that's what I see in chapter 11. I see three things. I see this. God has a limit, right? The time will run out and we should live like that's imminent. God illuminates steps and we have to step out one step at a time. And if we do that, and we learn more of our father, he will change us. He will. It's such a beautiful thing. All right, now we come to chapter 12. And chapter 12 is Passover. It's such an amazing chapter. There's so many things to look at, but we're gonna stick with this idea of what does Passover tell us about God? But the other thing that I wanna do with Passover, and I like to do this with any biblical historical narrative is this. When you have a biblical historical historical narrative, you really have three audiences, right? You have us today reading this, reading God's word, that he knew even at that time we would read someday. This is God's word, it's living, it's true, and it's for us even today. So in some ways this passage from thousands of years ago was written directly to us and we're one of the audience members, right? But there's another audience member And it's the first century Jews who are actually performing Passover, who are actually reading the Torah, who are going to synagogue, the people living at the time of Jesus, the people this was written to, right? So that's the second group of people that you always see, the second audience you see in a biblical historical narrative. And the third audience is the people who are actually living through it. This actually happened. There were people who actually lived through this event, We can talk to them in heaven someday and find out what it was actually like. It'll be super cool. So as we go through this, that's what I wanna do. I wanna look at the three audiences and then see how what they can glean, what we can glean from this passage tells us about God's character, okay? So first, we're gonna read verse 12 through 13. It's a long little chunk of scripture, so bear with me here. I'm gonna pin my notes down so they don't blow away. It says this, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. For us, today, 2020, reading this passage, it's a picture. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. I mean, look at what happens here, right? So you take a lamb on the 10th day and you bring it into your house. This is the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on his triumphal entry. For the next four days, you examine this lamb you make sure that it is absolutely perfect without spot or without blemish. What happened to Jesus from the time that he rode in until the time that he was crucified? He's examined. I mean, read through the last chapters of Luke. He's examined by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's examined by the lawyers. He's hauled in front of Pilate. And what does Pilate say? I find no fault in this man, right? And then the lamb is killed. And its blood is spread out to protect its people. And Jesus is crucified for us. And its blood covers our sins. It's an absolutely beautiful picture. But the thing with Old Testament pictures is this people can get a little weird on them pretty quickly, right? This is absolutely a picture of Jesus. I mean, that's what John the Baptist says when he first sees Jesus Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? In 1 Corinthians, Paul calls Jesus our Passover lamb. And then Jesus doing Passover that night says, this feast is fulfilled right now in your hearing, in your seeing. I'm fulfilling Passover even this day. But what about all the other elements of Passover? Right, because I read a ton of commentaries on this. right? so what about the fact that the lamb's supposed to be roasted? right? I read one commentary that was like, well, this represents how Jesus was, endured the fiery flames for us. Like, really? I mean, maybe it could also be that it's in conjunction with the prophecy in Psalm 34:20 that says, "Not a bone would be broken." Psalm 34:20 has this beautiful prophecy about Jesus. It says, "Not a single bone of his will be broken. He's crucified, and not a single bone is broken," which is unbelievable. And if you don't have a pot big enough for a whole lamb, you're going to have to break it into parts to boil it. So maybe that's it. Just don't boil the thing, roast it. We're trying to tie in with this other prophecy. Right, what about the bitter herbs? Right, because I've read so many people who are like, well, the bitter herbs are to remind people of the bitter times in Egypt. Okay, that's awesome. I mean, that's important. It is really important for us to remember the bad times as well as the good times, isn't it? Because it's less than a month after this where the Egyptians start, I mean, the Israelites start saying, oh my goodness, Moses, take us back. It was so good in Egypt. And we're no different. We have short-term memory. I mean, Matt's talked about this lots of times about wanting to set up a camera like this. And when someone comes into his office, just broken from the sin and the consequences to videotape them. So that when they go out and start doing it again, he can play it back to them and be like, remember, it was bitter. It was difficult. It was hard, right? Younger people, dating age. How many times have you sat down with a buddy a couple months after a breakup and they're like, man, I wish I would get back together with such and such. And you like, no she drove you crazy. Like you were crazy. It wasn't good. Is that what the bitter herbs are supposed to represent? I don't know. I mean, it's good for us to think about. It's absolutely an important biblical principle. What about the blood, right? Doesn't the blood on the lintel on the top and on the doorpost on the side form the shape of a cross? Maybe. Of course, there's a lot of debate about whether or not the cross was in the shape of a cross. So you know you can take that one. I don't think that's the point of the picture. This is absolutely a picture, but I don't think all those little details are the point. The point is this. When I read this, it tells me that God knows exactly where he's going. That's our, that's our fourth thing about God, really. God knows exactly where he is going. This is thousands of years before Jesus walks into Jerusalem. And yet it's played out as a perfect picture. God knows exactly where he's going. I see this over and over and over again in the Old Testament. We see these little glimmers, right? All the way back to Genesis, right? The proto, I can never say that word right. So the the proto thing. When God basically lays out the gospel for the first time and says, hey, someday they'll bruise your heel, but I'm gonna crush Satan's head. Right? We've got the picture of Abraham and Isaac and the young ram and the sacrificial lamb and the substitution. We've got Passover. Passover's the big one. We've got the Psalms and the prophets. And over and over again, we're, we're pointed towards Jesus. Over and over again in the Old Testament, it's like, hey, listen, this thing's coming. And after Passover, it's really interesting because the rest of the Old Testament, there's this giant theme of remember what I did in Egypt and look forward to what I'm going to do someday in Jerusalem. Remember what I did for you when I redeemed you. Look forward to what I'm going to do when I save you. God knows exactly where he's going. And when Jesus died on the cross for our sins and fulfilled this Passover, God still knew exactly where he was going. You see, it kind of switches then if you move forward from that event through the rest of the New Testament, here's what you see. You see, we're not told to look back on Passover and forward to Jesus. We're supposed to look back on Jesus in communion and forward to his coming when he comes and redeems us and takes us home with him. He still knows exactly where he's going. Look at these verses. 1 Thessalonians 17:18. Here's what it says. Then we who are alive... Who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What about Second 2 Timothy 2.12? 2. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. What about Revelation 26? Over such the second death has no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. God knows exactly where he's going and he's going to get his people there. And no Pharaoh, no virus, no nation, no power, nothing will keep him from doing that. And he'll redeem his people again. And we'll get to go home and rule and reign with him for thousands of years. It's absolutely beautiful. Right? So, here's what we got four points so far. God has a limit, there's a time frame on this thing. God illuminates steps, we walk with him one step at a time. God changes his people. And fourth, God knows exactly where he's going. So that's the first part of Passover. That's the first audience. That's us. That's year 2020, America. But what about the people in Jesus's time who are celebrating Passover? For them, it wasn't a picture. For them, it was a party. I mean, look at this. Look at verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened, from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you." And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat no leavened bread. Did you get the part about not eating leavened bread? I feel like the last few verses on here is like, okay, don't eat leaven. You know that leavened stuff you use in bread? Don't eat it. Bread with leaven? Not right now. That leavened bread you like so much, wait seven days it's repeated over and over and over again. But for them, it's a party. I mean, look what it says in the middle here. This is a seven day with no work. Don't work for seven days. And the only work you can do is preparing food. And he's already made preparing food easier, right? Because bread was a major part of their food preparation. I read something that said possibly 70% of their caloric intake would be bread. Making bread is a lot of work. I bake bread. I love baking bread. It's super fun. It's a lot of work. God even took that away. You know what? Just make crackers for the next seven days. They're so much easier, so much faster. Take some time off. It's a party. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It comes right after Passover. People would travel to Jerusalem for Passover. Back in this Passover passage, they're supposed to get together. They're supposed to be with family. Then you have seven days off. And you know what I see about this? so interesting to me about God, it's this. God loves the pause button. It's really true. I mean, if you look at many of the things that God asks people to do, it's this. Periodically, on a regular basis, hit pause on your life. Just stop your crazy, relentless drive for whatever it is, success, accumulation, homeschool right now, just stop. Just pause and reset and do something else. Do something fun, do something enjoyable. Like how cool is it about God that that is a huge priority to him? Sabbath, one fifteenth of your days. Don't work, don't work hard. Don't pull out your to-do list. I was reading a book a while ago um, and there was a lot about Sabbath and it said people who Sabbath live the other six days differently as well. It takes some planning. It takes some energy, but man, it's so important. Then you have this feast here. Seven days, he said, no pause. You know what we've learned through this whole COVID-19 shelter in place, be home, quarantine? Americans are not good at pause, right? Like take the economy and everything else out of it. Just like being at home after two days, people are like, I'm losing my mind. Why? Because we don't know how to rest. We don't know how to reset. And it's really, really important. God brings it up over and over and over again. God says in this passage, make sure there's no leaven in your house. This is like mandated spring cleaning. It's just reset button. Start over. And you know what's so cool? There's so many things that they're supposed to do in this. If I was going to do a Sunday message over this section, I would probably grab this. Because there's all these cool things they're supposed to do during this pause and reset. They're gathering. They're celebrating. They're remembering. Right? Over and over again, through Exodus, you're going to see this. Remember this. But you know the other thing that they're doing is? They're training. These pause and resets, these feasts and festivals, some of which we still do today, like maybe Easter like the giant celebration we're gonna have at church when we all get to get back together again, that's gonna be a party. They're a great opportunity for us to train our kids. And God's really big on that. And we can train them in some interesting and difficult things. Like I think sometimes we we don't think our kids are ready for things they're ready for. Like communion. I think I wanna get my kids taking communion at the earliest possible chance. I think that my... Seven-year-old daughter is smart enough now, I should have already been doing it with her. And you might be like, oh man, how are you gonna talk about communion? I mean, you've got the death and the blood and the whole thing. Look at Passover, right? What do they do on Passover? They bring a baby lamb into their house and they live with it for four days and then they kill it. Okay, I brought home a lizard the other day, a alligator lizard, big, green, bite, mean, alligator lizard, by the time I came home two days later, my kids had named it and they were carrying it around as a pet. My daughter's like, look, I trained it. I'm like, no, it's starving. That's why it's docile. We haven't fed that thing anything. She's like, can we keep it as a pet? My wife says, I, I, think, we need a, I think we need a puppy because <laughs> your, your children are in love with that lizard. But man, can you imagine bringing a lamb into your home? These are serious things. This goes back to this idea that God has a limit. I mean, God is, God is deadly serious about us training our children to know the good things, the wonderful things and the difficult things. And I think we need to take some of these pause events, some of these celebration events and do those things, right? Because this was a party to them. Every single year they would do this and every single year they would get to talk about it and they would get to train their kids and they would get to talk through what this means and what God did and what he's promised to do. It's beautiful, it's so cool. God likes the pause button. He really does. Now, there's one more thing in this section that I want to to bring up before we move on, and it's this. Beware of leaven. Okay? Beware of leaven. How many times, raise your hand, right? Because I can see you all. Uh, You didn't know we've got super cool new two-way technology. I can see you all not paying attention on your phone. Um, How many of you have heard this? Leaven in the Bible is a picture of sin. Raise your hand. Have you heard that? Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that. Here's where it comes from, right? It comes from this. It comes from Luke 12, 1, where Jesus says this, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And then Paul picks it up in Galatians 5, 9 and says this, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. But that's not the only passage where Jesus refers to leaven. He refers to it twice. He also refers to it in Luke 13, 20. And here's what he says. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. God, Jesus here compares the kingdom of God to leaven. So what, leaven always represents sin? How do I, I think we, that's a misrepresentation. That's just something we've been told and we've heard, but we've never actually looked at and researched and found out. Right, because I remember sitting on the corner in London, freezing. And you know what my thought was? I probably should have looked up the weather for myself. I probably should have done some of my own research before I just took my buddy's word for shorts and t-shirts. We have to look at some of these things and take our own word for it because leaven is a beautiful picture, right? Like, I like to bake bread. That's man baking. That's how I think of it. Um, And one of the things I've really been working on lately is pizza dough. And if you're looking for a good pizza dough recipe, I've got one, just fair warning, it takes four days. Um, but pizza has this tiny little bit of yeast in it compared to a lot of the other breads. It's little, but over four days, man, it grows and it grows and it grows. We bring it out every day and my kids look at it and see how it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Because a little bit of leaven goes through and it, it infects the entire thing. And pretty soon there's leaven everywhere and it continues to grow and grow and grow, and that's a great picture of the um, legalism of the Pharisees. It's a great picture of it because a little legalism gets in there and it infects and it ruins what God wants to do through something beautiful. But it's also a great picture of good deeds and good things and that concept of paying it forward. Levin's also a great picture of that about how small kindnesses, about how things that we do in difficult times spread the gospel to places you wouldn't even know. So yesterday, I'm out working on an irrigation pump for a guy, and I've known him for quite a while, and um, super nice guy, but just not a church person, right? Probably not a God person. Um, I I just interpreted that maybe from some behavioral and speech things, okay? Let's leave it at that. Um, Nice guy, but just, just not not a God person um, yet. <laughs> but we were talking about this whole crazy COVID thing and uh, his wife works at the hospital and his wife, he said, you know what's really cool? He said, my wife has some friends who started this thing at their church where they're raising money for people who can't um, pay their bills during this COVID thing. And I go, oh, Esther and Esten Yang? And he goes, yeah. He goes, we've been given extra money that we have to that. He says, I think it's so cool that a church would do something like that that's also leaven. That's a little bit of leaven that's just going out into places you never would have thought it would be. And the whole point on this is this. We have preconceived notions about what things in the Bible might say, what things in the Bible might mean, and what God might actually be like. And we have to take them back to what the Bible actually says, or we won't get the real picture. We won't get the whole truth, right? So beware of leaven. All right. That's number four or number five. Here's what we have so far. God has a limit. God illuminates steps. God changes his people. God knows exactly where he's going. God likes the pause or the reset button and beware of leaven. Now we have the final passage and the final group of people, the people actually living through Passover. Here's what we have. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord has given you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went And did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. The final point is this. God wants a partnership. God wants a partnership. I think I bring it up every time I teach. And I think that's for me, one of the most important things that I've learned about God over the past several years. I'm sure Matt's been talking about it forever but it didn't really sink in until we did that King Me series a while ago. And he just talked about this partnership, about ruling and reigning with Jesus and this partnership and this partnership. And I began to see the way that I relate to God in a different way, which if you're wondering, that King Me series is still available on our website. I checked it out today. And then I took a little informal survey and seven out of seven pastors here said it'd be better to listen to the Kingman series than binge Netflix. So, you know, little series, it'll take that for what it is. But God wants a partnership. You notice that for nine plagues, Israel's been protected and they haven't had to do anything. God's been revealing his character. He's been revealing his nature. He's been revealing his power to Israel. And now in this 10th plague, God asks them to do something, to step out in faith and step out in obedience and respond. It's really a response. This is what God is saying. I'll provide a way, but you must walk in it. I'll open the gate, but you better have your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. God does the work. God reveals his character. And then he asks Israel to partner with him in it, to partner in obedience and to walk this thing out. Do what I told you to do. This is exactly the Easter message. God acts first, God leaves heaven, God comes to earth, God dwells perfectly as a man. Jesus dies for our sins, substitutes himself for us. And then he says, just respond. Just accept what I've told you to do. Just accept me as Lord and bring me into your life. I've done the work, just walk in it. It's the partnership that God wants with every single one of us. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's what we see here at the end of Passover. It's a partnership. And I love the last line. And so they did. So they did. Israel did exactly what God said and God did exactly what he promised. Amen? Father, I thank you for this time, for this passage, for uh, what you have to show us about your own nature and character through this. Father, be with us this week, Walk with us, teach us. May we dwell on your character and nature. In Jesus' name, amen.